The top 10 Podfather takes from week 11 is here. And you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me, dude. You've got to be kidding me. 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 The first takeaway is you've got to be kidding me. What? Zero points against the Panthers? Matt Patricia? Zero points? Look at this guy. Look at him. You think that Roger Goodell is a clown? You think that Roger Goodell deserves a bozo nose? Huh? No, you deserve the bozo nose. Takeaway number one. Matt Patricia will never coach another NFL game for the rest of his life. And I apologize that Marvin Jones was in the DFS lineup genius. He was. There was a handful of lineups, one or two, that Marvin Jones made it into. I know. I know. It was a it was a skinny stack. A DJ Moore, a little Marvin Jones, hoping there'd be a sneaky shoot out there. But you know, Matt Patricia didn't let it happen. And we don't peddle the coach narratives here at Roto Underworld. But come on. Come on, man. What are you doing, Matt? How? Matt, I mean, of all the names, Matt, really? The most incompetent coach at the NFL. He should have been the first one fired. I can't believe he made it to week 11. And he's not going to make it to week 12. So I apologize that Marvin Jones was in the lineup genius at all. But takeaway number two is we're, we're doing 10 takeaways. This is the efficient show. I finally figured out how to do an efficient top 10 takeaway show where we hold it to 10 take aways <laughs> ripping off the sound effects from 60 minutes the signature sound effect takeaways the top 10 takes number two if you're not playing the dfs lineup genius lineups in the millimaker on DraftKings, what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing Another top 100 finish for the Podfather and company. And the company keeps growing. This is like Fight Club, where we had this house and it was just me and Josh Larkey, you know, playing floor hockey by ourselves in this big cavernous house, playing these lineups. And now, and then all of a sudden, guys start showing up and now they're out in the yard and they're, they're scheming their own lineups. But it's this big house that's now full and vibrant of people and DFS grinders making a lot of money. So the best lineup almost reached 200 DK points. Very just 198.62, DK points. Justin Herbert, Ezekiel Elliott, Salvon Ahmed, Keenan Allen, Adam Thielen, Deontay Johnson, Hunter Henry, Rashad Perriman. Dolphins defense. That's a Millie Maker winner caliber lineup right there. Things break differently at the end of that game. Ezekiel Elliott scores a touchdown. We could have been really like we could have been really. It was that close because we had a top 10 lineup. We have three weeks already. Three out of the 11 weeks, we finished in the top 100. One week in the top 10. Up close to 10 grand. Just playing you know, 10 to 20 lineups a week. Like we, we published 20 now, was 10. And some of you just play the first 10. Cool, right? Cool. And it's fun to crash the Millie Maker. I love that we're crashing the Millie Maker where you feel bad, right? You feel bad for those that are not quite scoring as many points as we are. Like if you scored 197 points, you're upset because we finished 90 
and it was like a 27-way tie for 90. So if you were just one point off from us in one of one of the Roto Underworld lineup genius lineups, you immediately went from 90 to 117. It's like, wait, I just lost. It's like the difference in one first down from Ezekiel Elliott it costs you hundreds of dollars. Like, wait, wait, how is this possible? It's because we're crashing the Millie Maker as a team. Feels so good. It feels so good. We had another lineup that was in play. 189.16 DK points. Deshaun Watson, Alvin Kamara, Amari Cooper, Brandon Cooks, Demir Bird, Dallas Goddard, Adam Thielen, Browns defense. Again, that lineup breaks differently. Like, oh, I don't know. Kamara getting a catch, right? Kamara didn't get a catch. I'm sitting here at 189.16 DK points. And if Kamara just has an average game, an average game, we're over 200 DK points. Just throw your papers in the air at that point. Because you had Thalen. You had the Browns defense. Demir Bird, hello. And the genius of the lineup genius is the creativity with the runbacks. You see the Demir Bird was not paired with Cam Newton. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because the game scenarios of the computer envisioned with Cam Newton did not involve Demir Bird hitting. But there were scenarios where Deshaun Watson hit where almost necessarily Demir Bird would have to also hit. That's why you saw Watson, Cooks, Bird. That was the game stack. And then you run it back with Cooper and Thielen with a mini stack in another game. And then a Chubb Browns Goddard mini stack in the Eagles Browns game. I mean, in the Eagles Browns game, you didn't want to play many guys, but you did want to play Goddard. You did want to play Browns defense. That was it. The computer knows, man. It knows. Sometimes you're looking at a lineup like that. That wasn't one of the top 10 lineups. You're like, oh, Demir Bird, really? Ugh. Nick Chubb's defense. Ugh, I don't know. No Miles Garrett. I don't know, man. I don't know. Lineup genius knows. Lineup genius knows. Reason why we're so successful on DK is because we have some edge over the field. There is very little edge on FanDuel. So if you're asking, why aren't the, the FanDuel lineups hitting? Because FanDuel is a lottery. It's not nearly as skill-based as DraftKings. So when the skill is ratcheted up, then the computer can give you edge. When you're just playing roulette, you can have a computer pick the numbers, but it's still roulette. It's still just going to be whatever number hits, whatever color hits. And I'll talk about this in much more detail on the Mind of Mansion show. There is a reason why, a clear and straightforward way our lineups are more successful on DraftKings than FanDuel, but the flip side is also true in cash games where the cash games on FanDuel are more successful. So you should be playing cash on FanDuel and tournaments on DraftKings. And this is like the seventh time I've laid out this tactic, but we keep getting emails and messages on Patreon about FanDuel. And I will explain why FanDuel is an exercise in futility trying to win the Millie Maker on FanDuel on the Mind of Mansion show. So stay tuned for that later in the week. And takeaway number three, Justin Jefferson's making a play. Justin Jefferson is making his case for ascending into the upper echelon of the dynasty rankings. Is he there yet? Close. It's close, right? Top 10. He's top 10. Is Justin Jefferson top five? No. 
Devontae Adams, DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, CeeDee Lamb. That's the core of the top five. Michael Thomas. Can't forget Michael Thomas. Has Justin Jefferson broken into that tier of the dynasty rankings? Not yet, but he's there with AJ Brown, just knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And it's interesting to see how and when Justin Jefferson is scoring fantasy points when he gets the air yards, 100 plus air yards in week three, 30 fantasy points, 141 air yards in week six, 38 fantasy points. He was the wide receiver one that week. And then in week 10, 155 air yards, 22 fantasy points. Last week, 107 air yards, 17.6 fantasy points, but it was less prolific week overall for wide receivers in week 11. So he was the wide receiver 13. If he can get to a hundred air yards, if he can get into some kind of shootout and you see the, the teams that Minnesota faces, it's a giveaway for what Justin Jefferson is likely to produce when they're facing the Falcons, when they're facing the Cowboys, when there's a high octane offense on the other side, propelling the shootout with a weak secondary. So you have the weak secondary and a high octane offense like you have with Dallas, like you have with Atlanta, like we thought we had with Carolina, but apparently their defense is amazing, Matt Patricia. <laughs> what? In those game environments, Justin Jefferson really thrives. In all these other weeks, when he's not getting to 100 air yards and the conditions are not right for a shootout, Justin Jefferson only gets to 50 air yards and he scores less than eight fantasy points. So until he more consistently produces fantasy points week to week, he's not going to be able to break into the top five. That's the litmus test for him to break into the top five. And he hasn't passed it yet. If he can be fantasy relevant in a week that the Vikings are not involved in a shootout and or are facing a smothering secondary, that will go a long way to propelling Justin Jefferson further up the dynasty rankings. But he's already top 10. Congratulations, Justin Jefferson. And as Justin Jefferson is moving up, you know who's moving down. You keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Go to the new Dynasty Deluxe module, keep scrolling. Oh, there's Julio Jones slipping outside the top 40. Can you believe it? We're in a world where Julio Jones is no longer a top 40 Dynasty receiver. He was hurt again last week, limped off the field in the first quarter, tried to play through it, couldn't. It's heartbreak. It really is. And when you look at this game, you think that Alameda Zacchaeus is the direct backup to Julio Jones. So this must have been an Alameda Zacchaeus week, but it wasn't. I wanted to come in front of you today and say, this is an Alameda Zacchaeus week. And it, it, it just it just wasn't. This was unfortunately week 11. It was Russell Gage. Look at the air yards. Russell Gage, 104 air yards. Alameda Zacchaeus, only 11. So... Gage operating as the number two, even though it was Julio Jones who went down, not Ridley. It's a bummer, man. It's just, it's a bummer that it's not Alameda Zacchaeus. I'd like it to be Alameda Zacchaeus. But now you have to look at Julio Jones and wonder. He's about to be 32 years old. So he's well on the wrong side. He's way out on the wrong side of the AJ Apex. And he can't stay healthy. And he hasn't been productive. You look at the game log for Julio Jones. He has. Two top 10 weeks this year. Two top 10 weeks this year. Week six against Minnesota in that shootout environment, 33 fantasy points. And then in week one, all the way back to week one against one of the weakest secondaries in the league, just a shootout machine, 
Like this is it's a machine that produces shootouts. The Seattle secondary matched up with Quentin Dunbar. He put up 25 fantasy points. But other than a game against Seattle and a game against Minnesota, no top 10 weeks. And then even in the games where he was relatively productive, it was Detroit and it was Carolina. Ooh. Ooh. So if we hold Julio Jones to the same standards as Justin Jefferson, he's in trouble because he's a soon-to-be 32-year-old wide receiver who can't produce against anything other than the most burn-worthy secondaries in the league. Julio Jones is in trouble. And in that game against the Saints, it's too early to declare victory for the Taysom Hill enthusiasts. I mean, congratulations. He did a great job. But let's remember Drew Locke against these Falcons a couple weeks ago, 313 yards and two touchdowns with 47 rushing yards and a touchdown. So he was a, a top fantasy quarterback the week he played the Falcons. So let's just wait. Let's just wait. Drew Locke has an approach that output since so let's just wait let's wait and see what Taysom Hill is can he be a pocket passer against a team not named the Falcons let's just let's wait it's too early to declare victory on Taysom Hill and it's not too early to wonder if Julio Jones is washed and Melvin Gordon's not washed Melvin Gordon is getting all the right carries and all the right touches at the right time in the right field position for Denver because it's a 50-50 split. Talk about a split backfield. Usually it's 60-40. Usually there's a primary back and then there's an auxiliary running back that we would prefer or less used. We, we, we want the touches consolidated across all the backfields in the NFL. Makes our jobs as easy, makes our jobs easier as analysts. However, in Denver, Melvin Gordon's producing as if it is his job and his job alone, even though the opportunities are split exactly 50-50. The snaps, Gordon 31, Lindsey 28. The routes run, Gordon 8, Lindsey 7. Touches, Lindsey actually had more touches in week 11, 16 to 15. But look at the red zone, 6 to 0. Gordon is the red zone back, and Gordon has commanded a significantly higher target share than Philip Lindsay this year. So even if you have a split backfield, it depends what the roles are. If it's a specialist backfield, what are the roles that these running backs are specializing in? And if you're getting the touches near the goal line in the paint and you're commanding the targets out of the backfield, those are the high leverage fantasy point rich touches. Philip Lindsay is getting all the empty calorie touches between the 20s. And that's not helpful for fantasy football. That's why in spite of exact 50-50 workload divide, 20 fantasy points for Melvin Gordon, only eight for Philip Lindsay. You just don't see that. It's a rare thing that all the fantasy points would skew to one of two running backs in a true 50-50 timeshare, but this is the rare case that we're seeing in Denver right now, and Melvin Gordon is the back you want. And in week 12, their salaries, Gordon 5.2K, Lindsay 4.4K. For just 800 more, you want Gordon because he's getting those fantasy rich touches. And so is Darren Waller. Darren Waller is a rare alpha receiver 
at tight end. Now, Travis Kelsey is also the alpha receiver in Kansas City, but it's close, right? It's close between, is it Kelsey? Is it Tyreek Hill? You could make the argument it's Tyreek Hill. Tyreek Hill has more air yards, but Waller has it all. Waller's dominating in every category as a receiver in Las Vegas. There's no one else close to Waller, and he did it again. He did it again in week 11. He outsnapped Nelson Aguilar, who's been operating as the number one receiver. Aguilar has usurped Henry Ruggs as the number one wide receiver in the Raiders passing game, outsnapping Ruggs, running more routes than Ruggs, commanding a hell of a lot more targets than Ruggs. But Waller is outsnapping Aguilar, outsnapped him 53-43, and ran more routes than Aguilar. And their final line was identical. Aguilar, 6 for 88 and a touchdown. Waller, 7 for 88 and a touchdown. Because, of course, Waller's just a little bit more efficient. Right, even if he gets less targets, he's going to get more receptions because Waller's that much more efficient than Nelson Aguilar. And whenever the number one is a tight end, it makes it very difficult to roster and start the number two. So I streamed Nelson Aguilar in a handful of fantasy teams this year, but I don't roster him permanently. It's the same thing with a Darnell Mooney. The problem with Darnell Mooney is. You play him one week and it's successful, and then he has a, a smash matchup, and you play him with confidence and flex or your wide receiver three slot, and then he gives you two for 23. Why? Because he's not Allen Robinson. Nelson Aguilar is not Darren Waller. So in the second half of the season, I just drop these guys. And, and sometimes your league mates are shocked. Like Aguilar is the number one now, he is a, a lesser version of what we saw from Devontae Parker last year, this late career renaissance. How could you drop Nelson Aguilar? How could you drop Darnell Mooney? Because they're not consistent weekly producers. Aguilar puts up zeros, and then he puts up 15 fantasy points. You don't know what you're getting. Depends on the matchup and the game script and the cornerback wide receiver matchup. There, there are too many forces at play that can move the production to one end or the other end of the spectrum. So. I just stay away from those wide receivers. I may stream them for a week and then immediately drop them. I don't want to carry them over week to week because going into Sunday, my bench in the second half of the fantasy season is all running backs, whether it be Devontae Booker, you name it. A lot of backups, handcuffs, just running backs because if they hit, they'll hit in a big way, right? Remember five years ago, CJ Anderson hit in the second half in a big way. He emerged as the primary back in the Denver backfield, and he was the second highest scoring running back in the second half of the season behind only Le'Veon Bell. If you didn't have Le'Veon Bell that season, you needed C.J. Anderson. So you're targeting the next C.J. Anderson. You just don't know who it is, so you just need to stockpile your bench with running backs, and it makes for some tough choices and some awkward moments where you're drafting players you like. You're adding players you like you're starting players they're producing and then you have to turn right around and cut them and having that discipline to cut a mooney to cut an Aguilar after they produce for you so if you could look at nelson Aguilar coming off what was going to be a shootout against kansas city you can look at him on your team and say i'm going to go ahead and drop him for a running back he may be outproducing a Salvon Ahmed, but Ahmed is a more valuable asset as the starting running back, the primary back in Miami. I mean, 
if you look at Ahmed's numbers, they're not impressive, right? But you look at the snaps and the routes and the touches. He outsnapped Laird 38-13. He outsnapped Matt Breda 38-7. That was the big question. What's Breda's going to roll? What's his role going to be? What's his role going to be? Nothing, right? Even in a game where Miami was in comeback mode and running two-minute drill at the end of the game, and that's Patrick Laird's specialty, even given that game environment, Ahmed still ran 19 routes to Laird's 10. And Ahmed had 17 touches. Laird and Breda combined for three touches. And now looking at the main slate in week 12, they've only bumped up Ahmed's salary on DraftKings 300. He's now 5.1K. So Melvin Gordon, a value heading into week 12 on DraftKings. Ahmed, a value, especially knowing he's going to be playing the Jets. The Jets. And he's a better back. He's a more talented, more reliable producer than a Kalen Balaj. We saw oh, that Kalen Balaj against the Jets revenge game. He's not skilled, but given that game environment, he's going to succeed. He picked up an injury mid game. It just didn't work out for him. So he was banged up. He was ineffective. It's it, 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 he did. He pulled the Balaj. That's why he wasn't recommended as a play, even against the Jets. We didn't, we couldn't recommend him. We couldn't recommend him with a straight face. Ahmed, we can recommend with a straight face. Ahmed has been much more reliable. And something is wrong with Joshua Kelly because this should be the Joshua Kelly show. We should have seen the Joshua Kelly show on Sunday. I'm heartbroken. I hurt inside that we didn't get to see the Joshua Kelly show. It should have been a laser light show at home against the Jets. Joshua Kelly, 104.3, 77th percentile speed score. 68th percentile agility score. He was a monster producer for two straight years at UCLA. He's best comparable to Sony Michelle, but he's a much more fluid receiver. So he's super fluid in the passing game with that Sony Michelle size athleticism profile and the super production on his college resume. Now he wasn't a prolific producer at UCLA, but he was a guy that put up back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, and he had a season with 27 receptions. So anytime you can put up back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, then I consider you a monster producer at the running back position, especially if it's a D1 program. Because so often, you look at Sony Michelle, wasn't able to ever seize a starting role based on all the competition in the Georgia backfield during his time there. But most of these running backs struggle to put together back-to-back thousand-yard seasons, whether it be injury, whether it be competition for touches. Joshua Kelly did that after transferring from junior college. So he was set up for success in this. This was supposed to be a shining moment. So I believe he's hurt. I think he's playing hurt. There's no other explanation except that Joshua Kelly's playing hurt. That's now, God damn it. I forgot. I lost track of how many takeaways I had. It. I was counting them down, right? One, two, takeaway four, takeaway five. I was so organized. And now it's, it's a takeaway. So we're going to give you more than 10. I was going to stick to 10 takeaways, but now this Joshua Kelly. I wasn't going to talk about Joshua Kelly, but it's just, it's heartbreaking. I had to mention it. Now we're, we're going to be over 10 takeaways again. And his teammate, Jalen Guyton. Oh my. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed on behalf of Jalen Guyton. We all should be. One target, 50 routes. 
One target in 50 rounds. The guy runs a 4-4-4 at 212 pounds with 75th percentile burst and agility. He is a phenomenal spark athlete. He's getting a full complement of snaps and routes. He's running significantly more routes now than Mike Williams. Let that sink in. And yet, and yet, his 8% target rate is as low as I've ever seen for a wide receiver at this point in the season. Target rate are targets per route run. How how could you think about how low 8% is? There aren't that many receivers on the field at any given time. Just do the math. It's pathetic. Now, part of the reason why is when, you, when you're on the field, sharing the field with a guy that can get open at will like Keenan Allen, this is what happens, right? And the Jets decided they weren't going to try to do anything to stop Keenan Allen. They weren't going to double cover him. They weren't going to do anything. So if you're not going to even try to stop Keenan Allen, then there's no incentive for Justin Herbert to throw it anywhere else but in Keenan Allen's direction. So in that way, it's understood. You can conceptualize how it happens that a guy can run 50 routes with one target. I mean, that's demoralizing. I mean, well, how does he feel when he's sitting in his locker after the game thinking, I'm tired, man. I'm so tired. I just ran 50 wind sprints and won. One of those 50, I actually played football. Like, think, think about that. It's crazy. He is the ultimate decoy wide receiver. And we played him in a handful of lineups because we thought, hey, this guy is getting the snaps. He's running the routes. He's just not getting the targets. So we played Guyton for all the same reasons we played Demir Bird, right? Because we are monitoring the snaps and the routes run on playerprofiler.com in the game log. So that's how Bird gets played. That's how Guyton gets played. So before you criticize the Guyton play, remember that the Bird play won hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So Bird was the key to victory for lineups. Remember that before you criticize the Guyton play because they're based on the same logic. And you have to wonder, are Jalen Guyton and Marquise Brown playing the same role? What's the difference? Right. What, what's the difference between the Marquise Brown role as a decoy stretch Z and the Jalen Guyton role as a decoy stretch Z? I don't see a big difference. Willie Sneed has as many 20-yard gains as Marquise Brown on 19 fewer targets. That stat is courtesy of the stat maestro, Rich Rebar, at Lord Reeves on Twitter. It's a rare thing that I cite someone else's stat on the top 10 takeaway show, but that's how good that stat is. And that's how good rich rebar is. And Marquise Brown's a bust. Like he is a bust bust. And at this point as a first round pick, he's highly unlikely to break out. He now has to follow the Devonte Parker, Nelson Aguilar career path to maybe break out at some point years from now. It's probably not going to happen. And I'm worried about Michael Gallup. I'm worried we're never going to see a breakout season from Michael Gallup again. We got the breakout last year, but it couldn't be sustained. 1,200-yard season and then nothing, right? These were the signature round five and six busts. It is fertile ground for wide receivers in rounds four, five, six, seven. That's where we we're focusing our attention on the wide receiver position in fantasy drafts this summer. But there were landmines. Marquise Brown, landmine. Michael Gallup landmine. And the difference is that they had far less experience and a, a much weaker track record than a wide receiver in his prime who had a much higher floor and it was much more difficult to imagine him failing in Keenan Allen. Keenan Allen was the most productive wide receiver in fantasy 
last week as he is most weeks, right? In PPR leagues, it was Keenan Allen and Adam Thielen in week 11. You look back, it's almost always Keenan Allen. Look at the Keenan Allen. Look at it. We talked about the, the Julio Jones game log and how it's been underwhelming in spite of having the easiest schedule you could possibly imagine and him actually putting up the bare minimum given the competition. Look at the Keenan Allen game log. It's just 16, 30, 15, 11, 22, 22, 25, 13, 29. It's just, it's crazy, right? It's crazy how good he's been. How can you not be impressed? 38.5 DK points. 38.5 DK points last week. It's shocking. I couldn't believe it. But because he had so many receptions, he was actually able to outscore Adam Thielen. I, I, I was surprised. I thought Thielen was the wide receiver one. Not so fast. It was Keenan Allen. And many were drafting Gallup and Marquise Brown ahead of Keenan Allen. I could see it with Michael Gallup. Give the uncertainty with Tyrod Taylor and or Justin Herbert under center. And that Michael Gallup officially broke out and was in his super prime with Dak Prescott at quarterback. There was a clear argument that resonated with me that Michael Gallup had a higher ceiling than Keenan Allen, but that Keenan Allen had a higher floor and depends on how many wide receivers you have rostered at that moment, which way you go at the end of the fifth round, beginning of the sixth round, but not, 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 not. There was no case for Marquise Brown, who's yet to do a goddamn thing in the NFL. It's a total projection over a guy like Keenan Allen. No way. But, 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 yeah, in a lot of the, mainstream high-profile fantasy analysts with big microphones talk about, oh, you just can't pass up Marquise Brown there. Yeah, first-round pick, four three wheels, Lamar Jackson, <laughs> got to get him. <laughs> Wrong. And there are a number of sneaky plays in DFS for Week 12. The main slate has a number of sneaky plays. We talked about Ahmed. We talked about Melvin Gordon. I have one more, Kareem Hunt. Yeah, Kareem Hunt did nothing. Kareem Hunt wasn't impressive, Kareem Hunt flamed out officially in the box score in week 11. But if you look a bit deeper, you look at the carries plus the routes, just carries plus routes. Nick Chubb, 26 carries plus routes. Kareem Hunt, 26, right? Now, Kareem Hunt is not an explosive athlete, and he's been revealed to be less than an elite talent at the position. Like In the context of the Chiefs offense, Kareem Hunt was perceived as this elite running back count just needed an opportunity, but NFL general managers gave it away and that the Browns were able to re-sign him at value. It's a warning sign. Then Nick Chubb goes down and you're penciling him in as an RB1, top five potential, and then Kareem Hunt doesn't deliver. And you go back to player profile to go back to the workout metrics and go, yeah, this guy was never an explosive athlete. Was Kareem Hunt benefiting from the chief system in that that perception has carried over from multiple seasons now that he's been in Cleveland. So I believe that Kareem Hunt went from overrated to underrated to overrated, but now heading into week 12, perhaps, perhaps now not a guy you play in cash. So that's why I say perhaps we're allowed to say perhaps when we're setting up our tournament lineups, tournament strategy, but there is a chance that that now with Nick Chubb back and clearly the more efficient back of the two, that Kareem Hunt is now again underrated. And you think about their salaries 
heading into week 12. I think Kareem Hunt's a value because who are they playing? You look at who they're playing and you're like, oh, okay, so this is a friendly matchup and Nick Chubb is priced up, rightfully so, right? Nick Chubb should be priced up, but all of a sudden you're looking at a pretty nice value on Kareem Hunt. You're like, well, geez, I don't know. There are a lot of choices in this price range, right? We talked about Melvin Gordon, talked about Ahmed. They're less expensive, but at Jacksonville, 5.6K for Kareem Hunt. There are a number of game scenarios that you could envision Kareem Hunt actually seizing more opportunities in week 12 than Nick Chubb. They had the same, right? It was the same opportunity distribution in week 11, right? When you add up the carries and the routes, they were 26-26. Now imagine that they get out to a lead and maybe that lead is driven by a screen pass that goes for a touchdown to Kareem Hunt. And Nick Chubb has a severely sprained knee earlier this, this year. So you can imagine maybe the Browns get out to a lead, double-digit lead in the second half, and they could lean on Hunt in the second half. So it could be a game where the fish are swimming upstream to get to that Chubb salary. They, they want to move up to Chubb. And I get it, right? It, it's going to be probably friendly weather conditions. So Mayfield will be more capable of sustaining drives in Jacksonville as opposed to Cleveland. So everyone wins on offense when the quarterback can sustain drives. So you want to play Chubb understood. We're going to have some Chubb. I'm sure the DFS lineup genius is going to have some Chubb, but we'll also have some hunt because in tournaments, what if Chubb goes down again? What if Chubb aggravates the knee? There are a number of scenarios, both with running back health game script, personnel groupings. There are a number of uh, game condition scenarios that can play out where Kareem Hunt could smash and return significant value in tournaments this week. And another player that I have to mention for tournaments, and I, I know I don't deserve to talk about him, and I have uh, opted to cancel all my Buccaneers backfield takes all my Colts backfield takes. They're canceled for the rest of the year. They're canceled, right? Because after Naheem Hines was announced the starter, I posted a tweet said, Hey, Naheem Hines is a guy you're going to want to play. Look at Naheem Hines. Think about him as the starter at home against the Packers. It's hard to envision a scenario where he doesn't return value at you know, close to 5k on DraftKings, And then he doesn't. Right. He, he, he was he was a face plant, and that's what you deserve when you tout a player that does not have a true all-purpose skill set, does, that does not meet the criteria of uh, a primary back in the NFL. It just doesn't have the requisite size, doesn't have the history of production in the NFL. So to run out to best-case scenario and lose all conviction in Jonathan Taylor at the same time was embarrassing. I'm, I'm embarrassed. And I, listen, I will volunteer to shelve all of my Colts running back and Buccaneers running back related takes for the rest of the season. Like we're, we're I'm canceling all the takes. I won't have a take on Taylor or Hines or Jones or Fournette for the rest of the season. I've just been on the wrong side of these backfields all season. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Probably. Not quite. 
because oh baby jonathan taylor is not dead yet 